COVID-19 has brought the modern world to its knees. Established lifestyles and habits had to change overnight. How did we get to this point? How could we have created such a vulnerable society, allowing a pandemic to create such a deep crisis? In this episode of Rethink Talks, we will take a deep dive into what this says about our world and what change it may trigger. My name is Louise Hordavsegerstad. With me, I have three experts on change and transformation. Professor Martin Scheffer from Wageningen University in the Netherlands, Lauren Hermanus, expert in sustainable development in practice in South Africa, and my colleague Dr. Michelle Lee Moore from the Stockholm Resilience Center. Welcome to Rethink Talks. Hi, great to have you here. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. I'm so happy to be a part of this conversation. Sure, let's go. Today, we're going to talk about crisis, change and transformation. Each of you bring a wealth of knowledge. But before we start, can you give our listeners just a a glimpse of your experience and uh, background? Lauren, would you like to start? Yes, thank you. Um, I'm a sustainable development practitioner um, based in uh, Cape Town in South Africa, that's um, embedded in several uh, networks of conversations. Um, in different parts of the world, really thinking about how systems change at different scales, in different ways, uh, spurred on by different actors. Um, And I've been working with Michelle Lee on a project called Transforming Change, um, where we've been thinking about these issues and now thinking about them in the COVID context as well. So really thrilled to be a part of this. Great. We'll look into more, more into that. Martin, would you like to go next? Yes, I I am based in uh, the Netherlands, in Wageningen. I study complex systems, so for instance, ecosystems, the brain, financial markets, and I study them from a from a mathematical perspective, uh, asking the question uh, how we can understand uh, the phenomenon that change sometimes happens so unexpectedly in in bursts after long times of no change suddenly a financial market crashes or suddenly uh, you get a new idea in your head. How does that work? Hmm. Great, thank you. And Michelle Lee with me here in the studio. Yeah, I'm I'm based here in Stockholm uh, at the Stockholm Resilience Center. And my work focuses a lot on governance innovations and also trying to understand, like Lauren and Martin, understanding how we, what what are the dynamics of change in complex systems and complex problem areas I also spend a lot of time looking at then what are the capacities we need to navigate those kinds of complex change processes, which takes me in all sorts of fun directions around imagination and reflexivity. But I do also spend a lot of time trying to think about how do we translate all of this science and knowledge that we're building around these complex change dynamics to help practitioners who are on the ground trying to make this happen in, in real time. So think a lot about it creating and designing transformative spaces. We refer to them as places to bring people together or trying to make this kind of change happen. Mm. Great. Thanks so much. And from that, I think we'll go right into that practice, right? We will go onto the actual experiences. Would you like to start, Lauren, and share 
with us, you're in Michelle Lee's work uh, with experiences from the COVID-19 and how it has impacted people's lives. Sure, absolutely. So Michelle Lee and I have been uh, working with a cohort of development practitioners um, from different African countries who are working at different scales on various sociological challenges, all driving some kind of positive transformational objective through their work. Um, and really, their work is already extremely complex and often unfolds in highly contested environments. Um, and now they find themselves in the middle of what we're calling a global crisis. Um, this crisis has uh, multiple dimensions and very much is felt at their national context and in their local context as well. And so our work and engagement with them at the moment, in addition to trying to carry on with what we were doing before, has been to try to understand in this moment, perhaps that can be characterized as a an unexpected large scale, uh, not totally unprecedented in every way, but certainly a, a, a large scale, profound, unexpected change in the way that we organize ourselves. What does that mean for these particular change initiatives that are happening on the ground? And I think the results have been they're still unfolding, but certainly our experience of engaging with these change makers um, has been one that there's a profoundly personal, deep emotional component to navigating um, this context at the moment, and that the split between people's personal lives and the way that they live uh, with their families and in their communities and the work that they're trying to do out in the world external to that, um, that line has become really blurred. And so people find themselves reconfigured um, within their personal systems, um, within their organizations that we're working in. Um, and then also find the entire context for the programs of work that they're undertaking reconfigured as well. So there is um, this interesting shift that I've observed where, you know, when people kind of look into the future and think about how their work is going to affect change going forward, um, there has been in the past a sense that uh, the immediate context um, and the near future is relatively well understood, but what will happen far into the future is not very well understood. What's happened at the moment because of the multiple uncertainties that have been introduced um, as a result of, of COVID, there is a sense that actually looking a little further into the future, there are some um, longer term patterns that are giving people a sense of certainty and an ability to navigate the present. And actually the present moment is what feels really, really uncertain and extremely overwhelming. Um, so that's just one of the uh, dynamics that we've, that we've noticed in engaging with people. Um, but there have been multiple, multiple aspects um, mm. to that. Um, yeah, but I'll hand over to Michelle Lee to say a little bit more. Great. Thanks so much. Yeah, please, Michelle. Yeah, this, this is, it's fascinating to, to be thinking about this with you, Lauren, because of course, as Lauren said, we're still right in the thick of it. And we are still analyzing and, and, and speaking with people. <clears throat> but one of the things I think that's been jumping out for me so far, is that um, these 
a, a number of people have are are in organizations and leading work that are trying to, in some ways, re- reduce vulnerability and and create some security. Whether that's in a, in a form of livelihood security, whether it's around education, whether it's around food, you know, the work people we're working with cut across a number of different sectors and areas and organizations, but. What they've been reflecting on in, in speaking with us is that in some ways they've reduced that temporarily. So maybe they've increased um, access to food markets or maybe they've done a whole bunch of work in community where they've actually really genuinely been trying to transform some of the norms and the beliefs around who who gets to earn money in terms of empowering women or children and, and um, taking different roles in community and things like that. But um, what's happened is then they've only increased that security into a system that's highly vulnerable and highly insecure. So you've increased access to a food market in a food system that is actually very vulnerable to these cascading crises and shocks or, in, you know, engagement with a financial system that is also um, quite vulnerable to these kinds of cascading shocks. So I think that that sense of how do you actually build resilience, reduce marginalization, marginalization, address vulnerability, you know, it's all, we're starting to think about it, maybe that was a false sense of security, even when they were taking initiatives that at the group level or in a community was, at the outset, seemed quite transformative. And I think it's been reminding me about how when we're talking about transformations, how multi-scalar it is, how if you actually want to transform systems, you know, it's not just in in a small group often, because that group exists within this other system that can be behaving according to its own dynamics. Mm. So if I hear it right, it's like people move from one vulnerability, vulnerable situation, but the the sort of the coping strategy might be into something that's not long term resilient, but that's at least out of the the acute crisis. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Mm. Yeah. Very interesting. Thank you. So Martin, um, I'd like to turn to you. You're currently working on a book with a title that I love, Lost Attraction. Um, and I suspect it has relevant for our understanding about the pandemic. Tell us more. What's behind that title and your work? Well, the book I'm writing is about about a big question, about the question whether it will be possible for humanity at all to start doing things really differently, to to steer us away from a collapse of the climate, uh, the biosphere, so to say, to do things in a way that moves us towards a sustainable and just world. So so what will it take, so to say, to break our love affair with the way we run the world, our, our love affair with the things that we think we want? Uh, what does it take for that attraction to be lost? So that's the lost attraction. So think of a love relationship. Uh, it can be really hard up to hard to to break up sometimes, even if at some point you see that the relationship is destructive and leading nowhere, you stay attracted. So what does it take for society at large to escape from that spell, from that attraction? And I'm I'm, I'm asking that question, combining a number of different lines of work that I have been doing over the past decade. One is trying to understand how ancient societies, civilizations have collapsed. Really, those were transformations to to a new way of doing things. I'm also uh, 
bringing in the mathematical theory of attraction. In mathematics, we know uh, that there exist attractors. That's a technical term for something that the system gravitates to. When will that be unstable? And of course, I bring in the, the recent work that we do on the effect on of, of social media, for instance, on on the perception of the world. I think the bottom line of them of all this work is that uh, we only see very big change in societies if people uh, become very discontent with the same thing it is it is run. And what I what I find really interesting about the about the pandemic response is that there are so many things that we thought we could never change. You know, it will be, it's too expensive to do something about uh, the carbon. Uh, we have to keep the economy running. We cannot really do this and that. And now you see suddenly um, a response all over the globe where things become fluid and actually we can do things differently. So I, I find that a very interesting uh, connection from the point of view of what I'm working on. Hmm. Thank you. And with these uh, both on-ground experiences and, and reflections at the at the larger scale from Martin, I'd like to ask all of you um, if you see some what. Well, of course, there will be multiple, but a deeper structure, one or one each, maybe. But but if you could say something about what do you see is the deeper structure that we we ended up here. Would you like to start, Lauren? Yeah, absolutely. The one thing that often occurs to me when we speak about um, change and changing as a society is, you know, who who is that society? Who's that like emergent we that is changing? Sometimes when I think about, you know, the changes that need to come about in society and that we as a society have to change, I think, well, that is a very difficult question because um, even who we include in that we or, or what that we is that must change, I think is like really poorly defined and covers over, I think, a lot of the complexities around who has power and um, who gets to yeah, have large degrees of agency uh, over these micro decisions that we're told are so impactful. So now, you know, a whole bunch of us and myself included have had up to cancel international travel, for example. And this is something that we thought would be really difficult to change, but now it's changed. This is completely irrelevant to um, many of the people that I uh, work with and certainly with many of the um, uh, people that Michelle Lee and I have been interviewing. Uh, for our research and engaging with for our research, the problems that they're working on, the level of vulnerability that um, people are exposed to, they're just not, these are not the questions, these macro questions about the relationship between humanity and ecosystems are not the questions that they have the space to navigate. The level of vulnerability is so extreme um, and, um, that that even actually and now with with COVID that even actually some of the sort of developmental interventions that were being um, 
being implemented, you know, with an eye to sort of reducing people's overall vulnerability, even those have become irrelevant. I think at the basis of that for me is the fact that the we is highly contested. Mm. Humanity and the idea of humanity and the idea of humanism that underpins so much of our thinking in the developmental space is an empty, impoverished, and I would argue becoming to be almost entirely useless conception of humanity. Mm. I really love this, this reflection. It, it reminds me um, uh, the discussions I, I had with my son who is studying uh, humanities about... Uh, the term Anthropocene, and he was uh, rightly uh, making me aware of the the load in there. It's like the world changed and humans did it. And who are humans? Who changed the world? It's not everyone that had an, an equal effect, of course. Um, and and still, um, so I, I I I'm very much aware of that heterogeneity, and and I'm just wondering, I'm. Uh, what will it uh, what what will it take for this uh, heterogeneous world with lots of power relationships uh, indeed to make a big change the big change we need uh, if we want to avoid some big some big trouble we uh, we wrote a paper earlier this year actually um, concluding that in 50 years by by 2070 we expect about one third of the human population uh, to be forced to move uh, because of of climate change. That's huge. That's three billion people. Those are not the people mostly that caused the climate change. Those are people in the global south and that are the poorest in the world. They will have to move. Uh, my mass migration will be part of our future. And and then you see uh, the power uh, again uh, playing out. What will happen? Will will the rest of the of, of the world, the rich countries, uh, try to close their borders? Try to see to keep that out and say, "Well, we're we're doing fine." That's that's impossible. Probably you will see migration anyway happening in unpredictable ways. So we have to to think um, how to how to how to solve that where where should people go and then it becomes very close and i think that kind of pressures uh, COVID is is a little illustration of how we can actually change i think when when pressure is up uh, it will hit us all because nobody can escape from the tension that will arise uh, from that and we're all in the end in the same uh, little spaceship earth and uh, that that may uh, put pressure, uh, uh, make the pressure high enough to to really cause change. Because if you think of it, uh, incremental changes in a bit or a bit of that, uh, fly a little bit less, do a bit, little bit, uh, uh, become a few people becoming vegan or so. It's not, it's not enough. It doesn't add up. We need big change. Michelle Lee, what are your thoughts now, either on the deep structures or we're moving into the actual change? Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I, I'm, now I'm my mind is where what Martin has just said, and I think if those statistics predictions are, are come true, I mean, I, it just makes me think of how 
mass number of people being severed from their home, their identity, their livelihood. I mean, this just, what it reminds me of is these, these when we talk about what it actually takes to transform these deep structures, but also what do we want to protect, right? It's, it's I, I think there's a lot like in that identity and that connection between the social, the ecological, the human, the non-human, not only needs to be protected, but actually we want, if, if this transformation is to be more sustainable, more equitable, I mean, we need to really grapple with what that looks like and how to get there peacefully and in ways that uphold what what we're ta- like, you know, we talk about the sustainable, equitable future, but the process of getting there needs to also be sustainable and equitable. And um, it just it reminds me of the work of um, it's a Nicaraguan uh, social psychologist, Dr. Cabrera, and she's been doing a lot of work around um, these contexts, referring to them as multiple woundedness. Right. So you, you take in something like COVID and and there there is a real woundedness. I mean, there there are people all over the world who have lost people to this virus who can't go through normal rituals of grieving. And likewise, a whole bunch of people around the world who are going through moments that you would normally celebrate socially, who are also, you know, have had a complete loss there. But then you layer it in on these contexts and these deeper structures that Lauren and Martin are, are, are raising, you know, with their own path dependencies and histories and trajectories. You layer all that and you get this multiple wounded context. And it just reminds me of how much healing we're going to need to do, how, how critical that, that, that healing process is to actually transformation. Yeah. And I'd, I'd like to take another round if you, if you want to say something on what you uh, each one see as, as the is there, well, I'm thinking of the window. Is there a window for change now? Is there a window of opportunity? Has this crisis created that option? Or where are we going? Lauren, if you'd like to start, please. So I don't know if now presents a particular window more than there has been before. I think there's always space. Um, whether or not your particular interventions end up having a really massive impact, uh, one doesn't know, one doesn't have that kind of control, but one has to work as if they might. Yeah, when when I th- think of that question of whether the, the crisis is a, is a window of opportunity, um, the, I, I always find it useful to look from two different angles at such questions. One is the so-called normative and the other the, the positive. So that's the difference between asking what should happen, what would I like to happen, or what will most likely happen. Um, if I think of the of the letter, uh, then when you look historically, and that's a, a study we have recently done with, with historians, going back to the medieval times, if you look historically at what happens in crisis, in general, you see that they are used by the ones that have most leverage to improve their positions. In general, that it uh, enhances the positions of the of the most powerful. And you can see that now. You can see that some um, governments, countries that, that we think may be a bit evil are using it to enhance their grip. You see that in general, it is enhancing the wealth of a lot of the richest people in the world. Those changes uh, are especially uh, uh, long-term changes because 
in moments of crisis, we are able to revise institutions. We are in, able to change the rules, the tax systems, the, the, the way we, the rules of the, of the game, uh, so to say. And only historically in situations where you saw and uh, that's, so to say, the ordinary people will, were organized well in, in guilds, in, in, in organizations of workers. Could they use um, the leverage um, uh, to, to, to make, to make this, the, the, the situation uh, more just institutionally? Um, so I think um, then the, the situation will differ a lot between countries. Um, both when it comes to the issue of social justice and inequality, and also when it comes to the possibility to to have a green recovery, uh, so to say, it just it, it's it's very much a matter of of leverage of who can change the rules of the game, who can uh, affect the institutional response um, to to the crisis. Thank you. Yeah, Michelle Lee. Yeah, I I mean, I think there's always opportunity as well. I think we often, in the transformations research, have started using um, a term around so that comes from Sylvia Dorado's work around opportunity context. So there's sort of, you know, the context sometimes seems more transparent. Sometimes it's a little more hazy. Sometimes you look out that window and it's thick fog. <laughs> you know, it's a lot harder to see how to get to the things you might need to navigate to in order to make change happen. But I think that opportunity is still always there. And I think from various studies, we found that, you know, change moments like this are often actually absolutely critical to a whole bunch of activity that does create some type of transformative change. But two things from that is one, you know, who's going to take advantage of that opportunity and what kind of change? There is a dark side to that too, right? It's not always necessarily to this sustainable and equitable version. I heard a phrase recently about, you know, it, the worst thing isn't that we just go back to business as usual, but actually it's business worse than usual. Mm. And I just thought that kind of stuck with me uh, around a, a certain framing. But likewise, in some of our studies, we found, looking historically at various cases, that we also get transformations when there's been no crisis. You know, it, it's not always that you have to have an absolute crisis in order to get some really key transformative kind of moments with lots of potential that end up cascading across different scales and, and leading to really different kind of pathways forward. So I think, you know, whether whether this one is it or not, you know, to, we'll learn. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Time will tell. Well, I'm sorry to say, but this conversation is coming to an end. It's been wonderful to talk to you, three of you. And thanks so much for being with us. And uh, for the listeners, any interesting Papers and people that's been mentioned will be posted on the Rethink.Earth webpage. Thank you. It's been fantastic. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah, I got lots of new ideas from this conversation again. Thanks. have listened to Rethink Talks, a podcast series produced by the Stockholm Resilience Centre at Stockholm University. For more episodes, head over to our website, rethink.earth.